0: Welcome to Coffee and Change, a podcast where we talk about change in our lives, our work, and our world, and how we're managing it. On this episode, I'm going to try something a little different. Calling it Flip the Script, I've invited a frequent listener to interview me and ask me about change. I hope you enjoy. Hi there. My name is Khalil
1: Samani. I'm an experienced consultant in our customer experience practice at West Monroe Partners, Um, And I've been a longtime fan um, and follower of the Coffee and Change podcast that Bill does. Um, I've listened to it for a long time and have come up with a lot of questions as I was listening. Um, And one day I decided to ask Bill some of those questions um, that I had on my mind. And uh, we had some good conversations. And this idea eventually came up to flip the script a little bit and have me interview Bill um, and get some of his, his insights Um, on all these questions involving change and um, change in our lives and change at West Monroe um, and in industry and uh, in our jobs. So uh,
0: welcome Bill. Thank you. uh, Excited to have you here. (laughs) It feels good to be on this side of the microphone. Sure yeah. (laughs) Yeah, I appreciate the opportunity.
1: Well awesome. Why don't we get started and have you tell us for once a little bit about yourself um, your history w- with West
0: Monroe and sure. your history with this podcast, and kind of why you decided to do this in the first place. Sure. Yeah, I think um, it's it's kind of great to think about this almost, you know, a year or a year or more into this. And I was actually talking with a friend of mine who. Uh, runs a podcast um, called Curiosity Um, and he's sort of in season two of his podcast and it made me think a little bit around I think this might be the the first episode of season two um, (laughs) of this podcast Um, so a little bit about my background and how do I arrived at having this podcast Um, obviously I think folks know at West Monroe I lead our organizational change management practice here on the West Coast Um, Additionally to that, I focus uh, now in something I call digital change. So if you think about a lot of the digital strategy and digital transformation that our clients and customers are going through, um, that starts with change. And at the heart of anything digital transformation or strategy-wise is change management. So I'm getting to focus a lot on that. Um, so that's what I do kind of day in, day out. How this podcast came about, um, it's actually kind of a great story. When I previously worked in, um, before West Monroe, I was at, actually at the University of Washington. And I was the first change management person they had ever brought on staff um, there. And I was, I was helping or trying to help a lot of people go through some pretty significant change. And I realized that, you know, I would meet and, and, and have meetings or do demos with people and there would be groups of people, and I would talk about the change, the change curve, what that was like, how to mitigate risk. And a lot of people would get it, but then individually they'd come up to me and they'd say, I'm, I'm struggling with it. I don't really understand it. Um, I'm worried about it. And so I would say to them, hey, you know what? Let's just go grab a cup of coffee, and let's talk through it. Sure. And so in the process of that, uh, I would sit down with them, I would grab a cup of coffee, and we would just talk about, like, what are you worried about? What are you excited about? What do you need more answers on? And it became very approachable. Um, It became a little more proximal, um, proximal rather. um, And it didn't seem so burdensome to them. So what I ended up doing was using that as a tool. I would just say to people, let's go grab a cup of coffee and let's talk about the change in your life or in the world or in your work and let them drive the conversation. What ended up happening was many of them left those conversations uh, much more empowered, enabled, and ready for the change. So I thought, hey, those were very successful, but why should I keep that just between two people? Sure. Like the conversation like we're having today is great, but it's even greater if you can share it with the world and other people can listen to it, like yourself, uh, listening to the previous podcast and gain a lot of insight and wisdom. So that's how the podcast came about, and when I was here at West Monroe, uh, one of the things I said was, I'd love to start this, and they said, do it. And here we are today.
1: Well, we are all lucky to have you here and to have your insights and you. uh, through this podcast. So I'm um, very glad for that. Um, so you talked about the University of Washington a little bit, yeah. uh, previous to West Monroe. How, even before that, how did you get
0: interested in change management, or where did that interest come uh, get sparked from yeah it's um it's a great question that I get asked a lot obviously we do a lot of recruiting here at West Monroe we're growing quite a bit um and in the interviews a lot of times people say how did how did you get into change management and I think I may have mentioned in a previous episode with a with a guest um who used to work with me at IBM back in the day I think um I don't think I found change management I think it found me (laughs) um is what I usually tell people because change management itself has gone through an evolution um, over the past decade plus. It wasn't always called change management by certain people. Sometimes it was called business transformation. Sometimes it was communications plus. Sometimes it was communications and training. Um, at the heart of all of it, really, though, was uh, there was always a group of people that, uh, frankly, needed a little bit of support, be it coaching or um, you know through practice or tips or just some perspective, frankly, on, hey, this, things are going to be okay. Um, we'll get through it. You know, We're going to get to where we need to be in the future. And so because I, I think I took a very pragmatic um, and I would also say optimistic approach to things, I found myself on a lot of projects at IBM that involved me working with a group of people that were, frankly, struggling, whether it was through some negotiation or some system or some policy, They were really resistant, and I would come in, and I would just talk to them, like regular people, and we would brainstorm, and we'd get creative, and I would validate people's uh, worries or their thoughts, and I would focus in on behavior change. And before you knew it, people would say, wow, you ran a really great meeting. Can you do this one? And then that meeting led to another meeting, and led to a project, and led to a program. And so before I knew it, I I was leading change initiatives. And it was at that time early in my career, in my consulting career at least, that I thought, hey, I, I should probably look into what what some of the stuff is that I'm doing. And, and that's how I kind of found it. And the opportunities came fast and furious. Um, the great thing about doing this type of work is it always leads to more work. So if you do a really good job, and sometimes a good job means you encounter a lot of resistance,
1: mm-hmm.
0: that's okay. I want people to know that. Um, it's. It usually leads to uh, follow on work because people are so appreciative that you spend the time with them, that you help them work through their their fears and work into their hopes and you help them see a clear picture of the future. If you can do that for people, they will absolutely sing your praises and say, hey, you know what, you should go talk to this person because they could really use your help. And so one project led to another project, led to a program, led to, you know, transformation, led to uh all sorts of opportunities and, and that's how I think that's how it found me.
1: Wow. Awesome. you know, it sounds like a lot of that, a lot of your success in change management, um, and in those, uh, various initiatives and conversations you've had started out with, you know, a cup of coffee or, Mm -hmm. or listening to someone or listening to someone's fears and hopes, um, empathizing with them. Is there something to be said about empathy and change management or, um, maybe the, is empathy the root of change management?
0: It's a great question. Um, I think there's a lot of really, really brilliant people that have been trying to figure that out for many years. Um, <clears throat> I'll go out on a limb and say it's a huge part of it. Um, the first, I, I can sort of tip my hat to our first podcast guest um, was Shauna, Shauna Saffel. Um, and Shauna Saffle and I both work on, on this team here at West Monroe. And uh, part of the reason we both love our jobs in change management, and I think part of the reason we both do really well at our jobs is because our greatest strength According to Strength Finders, um, <laughs> is is empathy, and when I took the test, I took that Strength Finders sort of—I um, don't want to call it a test; it's more like a survey. Um, I took it in 2010, and I also retook it in 2018. Oh, interesting. And there was some change in that, but what was interesting was the the top strength, empathy, was consistent across both, and that really told me that. Um, to answer your question, yes, that is. That is the skill and strength that I use the most in doing this work. Um, how how that plays itself out and what that looks like every single day. You hit it on the you hit the nail on the head. You said, does it mean going to meet somebody for a cup of coffee or meeting people where they're at? And it's exactly it. It's listening. It's being curious. It's being genuine. And frankly, it's just meeting somebody where they're at. So. Try and understand what it's like for somebody. Try and put yourself in their shoes. Ask questions. Be curious. Come at something with inquiry um, as opposed to necessarily like rigid methodology. Mm, Sure. Um, And then oftentimes I don't necessarily have um, a set outcome in mind. Um, If I can help people work through something and feel more at ease, that's success to me. Sure. Sure and that's that's really neat to hear, because I feel like a lot of times we walk
1: into our conversations nowadays with an agenda. It's hard yes, not we to do. yeah, we walk into our everyday lives with an agenda or we break right. up with one. So coming in with an open mind and 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 treating
0: conversations like you were talking about is is really neat to hear. i think I think it's important to also call out that coming into a meeting or coming into you know a program or a project um, without set agenda. Mm-hmm. It doesn't mean that you're like turning your mind off, sure. right? It doesn't mean that you're not doing work. In fact, I would argue you're doing more work because you're you're just using a different side of your brain. Sure. Um, it requires a lot more reflection. It requires a lot more introspection. Um, it requires, a, as I said before, a lot more curiosity. And so those those are parts of your brain that light up in a different way than when you're prepping for a test or prepping for an agenda or focused on a set outcome because if it doesn't go that way a lot of times um, you can respond with with um, rigidity as opposed to resilience you know to the ability to bounce back or the ability to say well I wasn't expecting the conversation to go there but since it did Mm
1: -hmm.
0: I'll follow it sure Um, follow the thread where it goes and to me that's the part that I love about this job, is you discover so much about the human condition, and it's an honor to do that work. For sure, for sure. Yeah, and speaking of the human condition, uh, to talk about
1: change management as it pertains to society or change in society, uh, I'd love to know your thoughts on wh- why do you think change is important to us today, in today's mm-hmm. world? Um, things, you know, on the in the news and, and in our everyday lives, there's so much change right. uh, in work and <laughs> Uh, and politics and the economy and uh, why why is change um, important to us
0: today you know <clears throat> I think there's a couple different ways to look at this you you did hit on in your question there's a lot of change coming at us mm-hmm. every single day and I do not want to under I don't want to understate that um, there is um, just like every day there is more and more data generated in the world and you know you can look up the stats I think I shared it in my previous podcast around just the you know, amounts of data that are generated in a single minute or hour or day, um, you know, in today's day and age, far outdoes all of the data that was ever created for like thousands <laughs> sure, of years yeah, before. Right? Not surprised. And so, if you think about that scale, that's just intimidating to begin with. Um, but if you step back and you say, "Well, how does that present itself in your life every single day?" Right? We've, got a, we've got two laptops here. We've got a phone recording this. Mm-hmm. We've got a device. Like, these are all just things that are, um, that are mechanisms w- with which we are bombarded by change. So technology is a piece that I'm happy to talk about because that's sort of in our world. right? We do technology consulting. We help others um, use technology to better their lives. Um, I think it's important to understand that these are tools that can help you better your life. But they are also tools um, that can make you feel very inundated and, uh, overwhelmed. And as you talked about the amount of change, I think, um, there's a tremendous amount of change out there. Uh, why it's important to understand is you as a person and for the human condition, you kind of need to set your own, um, your own threshold mm-hmm. essentially and understand what is too much what is just right, what is not enough. Now that's going to change. That scale is going to change where you're at in your life and depending on how how much is in your control versus not your control. Um, Why I think it's important to talk about change is because change change is survival. Like if you go very Darwinian about (laughs) it, right, it's survival. And um, if you don't change, you don't grow. And if you don't grow, chances are you may not survive, um, you know, depending on where you're at in the world. But it's also a very scary experience to grow and to change. Um, and so part of the, having the discussions, to me it's important because um, if people can't make sense of it, then it dominates them. It overwhelms them. And if you feel dominated by something or overwhelmed by something or inundated by something, then you're not sort of approaching your day-to-day um, in your best mental health, and that leads to physical health and spiritual health and sure. everything else. So to me, I think it's an important conversation to have but it's a conversation that doesn't necessarily result in the same answers for every single person. Sure. And that's okay. okay. I would just rather people talk about it in whatever form and fashion they want, um, in whatever lens they want, so that um, I can play a small role in curating that conversation. Sure. Um, and you
1: talked about technology specifically being, mm-hmm. you know, many times an overwhelming aspect of our lives. So right. that you... T- Talk about the f- the phones and laptops and microphone, even in this room alone. Yeah. Um, so tell tell us a little bit more about that and mm-hmm. why maybe why technologies uh, can be overwhelming and potentially some strategies
0: to to deal with that. Sure. I mean, I think we get to we get to play in the space a lot, um, and we're very fortunate in our in our, our lives and in our roles, um, you know, in, in consulting because we get access to technology probably more so than, than most do in their day to day. Um, I, I think it's important to understand the role of technology as an enabler. Um, so, you know, the, I think I was reading the other day, the iPhone came out in 2007. I think yeah. that's correct. Yeah. So it's been around for about a decade, right? <laughs> wow. Right. And you say, wow. <laughs> yeah, like, <laughs> but you strange. think, you think to yourself, that's not a very long time. I'd let, you know a decade or more, but this device has completely changed the way that humans interact, that humans walk through a city, that humans take transportation, that humans get information, um, and and to me that's that's great. That's a great enabler that we've got a pocket-sized computer that you can look up and you can get voting information, and you can find out where it's safe to go, and you can find out you know where you know, where there might be a fire or what. Like there's all of this that that has um, at your fingertips, which to me is great. Um, it's a great enabler and it's a great equalizer. I think, um, why it's important to understand like where technology can be overwhelming is when, um, it starts to feel like it is leading us as opposed to us leading our lives with it Sure. or, you know, with, with it added. And really that's where it comes down to, um, you know, attention and, um, the ability to focus. Um, and there are a lot of studies that people can go out and read. Um, but when when technology starts to feel like it's dictating our behavior um, or we have to do it because of said technology, um, I think it becomes a dangerous, um a dangerous equation a little bit. And so it requires, you know, people like us to have conversations to say, great, that on its own is a wonderful technology. But how are you applying it? Like when you put it in an organization, what does it do? When you put it in your home, what does it do? Sure. Um, when you put it on the space station, <laughs> what does it do? Right? All three of those are, are unique examples um, that could bring a lot of pluses and present a few minuses. You just have you have to have a conversation about what that means, um, and everybody's take on that is going to be a little bit different. Um, and so, to me. That, you know, there's there's a lot that people, you know, can do in their lives to just stop and think about how is technology benefiting your life? Um, how is it possibly uh, presenting itself with some, you know, negative outcomes mm-hmm. that you may not have thought of? Uh, and then make decisions based on that. Um, so, you know, whether it's through work or through life, I try and revisit that conversation quite a bit. In fact, I'll be... Completely honest, I'm I'm probably at a point where in the next year or so, I'm probably going to do some um, disengagement from a lot of social media. Oh, really? Yeah, I think you know, know, the the, if you look at the examples of Facebook, right? Facebook at a certain time in my life did wonderful things. Sure. (laughs) I was a third culture kid who grew up around the world and moved a lot, and the concept of Facebook connecting me back with friends and. Um, you know, acquaintances and colleagues who, who otherwise I would have been, you know, writing emails and, and uh, letters to, it was great for a time in my life. I'm now to the point where I don't necessarily trust my data on that platform. And there's a lot of reasons that people can look, mm-hmm. look up in, in the news and other places to inform that for themselves. I'm not getting value out of it anymore. Um, it's actually presenting me with more stress and more anxiety and worry than it is presenting me with optimism, a sense of connection, and a sense of consistency. And so I'm trying to decipher and visit, you know, visit the decision as to whether or not I disengage from that sometime next year. So that's just a small example.
1: No, that's really interesting. It's good to hear that perspective. I think we've all thought about that a little bit. Yeah. um, Where is this data going? Is this Something I want to keep you know contributing data to I right. mean, in, whether it's advertent or inadvertent mm-hmm. um, so and is it
0: leading you or are you leading exactly it, right it, it goes back to, to the... g- g-
1: it starts to be a little scary when you start yeah. thinking about it right. yeah um, I guess conversely, there's a lot of different dimensions of technology, as you know, mm-hmm. um, we talk about functional dimensions and industry dimensions and um, the amount of technology in the world. Um, I've heard a, a couple of articles about. Um, the sp- a more spiritual dimension of yeah. technology. So yeah. it's a, this is a little esoteric here, but uh, the the thought is we have a moral obligation to increase the amount of technology in the world. Mm-hmm. So I, w- I w- would love to hear your thoughts on that.
0: Yeah, I think it's. Um, I love the fact that you took it esoteric, a little philosophical, <laughs> because. Um, I think sometimes I don't afford a, afford myself enough options to do that. Um, but I will. I will make a a plug and a. a sort of a plug zone for a couple of my favorite podcasts where I think some of this may may have sparked for you as well there's a great podcast I listen to called on being um, and there's actually a section that the um, interviewer her name is Krista Tippett um, does it's a little bit like what we're doing today sure. she actually did a uh, um, sort of a portion of the podcast called living the questions and it was very similar to this where they flipped the script and people asked her questions as someone who deals with this and um, you know, the philosophical or some of the esoteric questions. Um, and I think it's interesting, the moral obligation of technology um, comes up a lot in that podcast and specifically in her, with her interviewing her guests. And I love the fact that it does because those are the questions that kick around in my head a lot. Yeah, sure. And <laughs> <Same>. <laughs> when somebody else is interviewing on a podcast with a guest I've never met, and chances are I might not ever cross paths with them before, but when their answer or their question is exactly what's been bouncing around in my head or, or, an, or an answer I'm trying to formulate somehow, it makes me feel not alone in the world. And so when, when she posed these questions around the moral obligation of technology, I was so happy because I think to myself, look, technology is allowing us to do what we're doing today. Mm-hmm. right? Techno- technology is allowing us to reach other, other brains, other minds, other voices. Um, technology is, 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 frankly, helping people live longer in many ways. So I would say that's a moral obligation to continue supporting that technology. Um, but on the spiritual side, I think the thing that that I get concerned about is the noise. Mm-hmm. And when I say noise, I mean from the standpoint, again, back to the b- bombardment of what is coming at us and our ability to focus and make informed decisions. Um, I worry that we are putting a little bit of our experience on autopilot, um, I had a great experience the other day that I that I did with a chat bot. So um, I had ordered something specifically for Thanksgiving, and um, one of the people I'll be spending Thanksgiving with came back had a question. And they said, "Hey, I have an allergy to this particular grain. Do you know if these pies that you ordered had the grain in it?" And I said, "I don't, but let me check." So I went onto the website of said said you know supplier. And that little chat thing popped up, and sure. I said, "Okay, well, this ought to be interesting because I'm gonna I'm gonna um, ask a question. I know it's a chatbot, right? I know it's not a person. Mm-hmm. I asked the question; it was pretty complex about this one grain. I'm trying to look up an allergy information, and it came back with a script, which I knew it wasn't a person. But then, quickly, at some point, it shifted over when once the the, the technology realized that my question was probably more complex or more multi-threaded, I think they did pivot it over to a human being. And it was very noticeable when the human being was chatting with me as oh, opposed sure. to the chatbot. Because the context and the tone of their response was much more focused around we wouldn't ever want to put someone in a position where they have an allergic reaction
1: mm-hmm.
0: over a holiday like Thanksgiving. Yeah. So their empathy presented itself, right? And even though I was using technology to interact with this supplier, it became very evident to me in that moment that I am now getting empathy through this this lens, which made me feel better, because I now felt like I had somebody on the other side who I had done business with saying, I'm not only looking out for you, I'm looking out for your guests. Let me go get this information. What they ended up doing was they sent me an email separately with the exact ingredients, with pictures of the ingredients. Um, And the ingredients list there. Really? Which gave me assurance. And then I was able to send that on to that particular person and say, I assure you we're okay. And, right, and to me that, like, that could have been done a couple different ways. Mm -hmm. But it started off in a place of technology, chatbot, awesome. (laughs) It ended in a place of empathy and human connection. Because there was somebody on the other side saying, literally envisioning um, a person not wanting to have allergic reaction over a family holiday. I don't think you can replace that with technology. Sure. So, so to me, that's a spiritual yeah. and a moral obligation around how do you use technology to better the human experience. And I, I feel like those
1: interactions like with chatbots and uh, soon to be, you know, AR and VR are, right. are becoming more and more common. Right. Um, our interactions with technology as opposed to a human being. Right. Um, so I'm interested to hear your thoughts on, uh, as we interact more and more with technology, how do we continue to bring that human empathy in? Um, with a chatbot, I can see how getting yeah. kicked to a, to a person with a complex a- answer. Yeah. Um, but I, I do feel like we're, we're trending more and more away from having that human there. Yeah. Uh, um, so, I think, yeah. I
0: mean, this probably falls a little bit in your, in your line of, uh, study and work as well. I think it goes back down to human centered design. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I had a chance to meet with one of our colleagues earlier this week, who's down in LA and her entire background is on human centered design and, you know, designing systems and processes, um, and experiences, frankly, that are centered around the human condition. Um, to me, I think that's the power of coming at this work. Um, yes, the technology can save us time. Yes, the technology can probably save us um, money. But I think if you if you lose sight of that human centered design, that question: what are we really trying to solve? Um, or the question I would phrase is: how are we bettering the world? Like how are we improving the human condition? Mm-hmm. Um, if you start there and then you do offshoots, I, th- I think you stay in the lanes of, of this moral obligation of technology. Sure. Um, but if you don't start there and you go down this path, it's very hard to get back there.
1: Hmm.
0: Um, I think you can get very lost in the, um, the excitement and the, uh, you know, possibilities of things. And then it becomes about the thing and not um, not how it's affecting you and me. Sure. Oh, that's a great perspective, actually. That's, um, that's going to get me thinking a little bit.
1: Um, um, so I, I guess it can be hard to step back and, and realize how far we've come with technology in general. Yeah, um, And even to get to this point where we can have a conversation about esot- being esoteric with like technology or the spiritual dimension of technology. So... Over the course of your career, how have you seen technology change for the better or worse mm-hmm. and get to this point uh, where it is today that we're discussing?
0: You know, I would say, um, I mean, over the course of my career, I've definitely seen a lot of technology change. Um, I think I have chosen to probably focus it more on the for the better, and maybe that's because I'm sort of a glass half full kind of guy. Um, I definitely see how it can be used. Um, well, I, let's put it this way. I, I think it can be designed with the best of intentions. It can land with the worst of impacts. Mm. Um, and I'll give I'll give an example that again I read I read about recently. Um, the uh, there was a there was a company that was running sort of their initial recruiting screen using a, an AI. Um, you know built um, I guess algorithm if that's if that's the appropriate term and so essentially what this algorithm was doing was trying to go through and look at um, the best qualities of the top performers in this organization oh interesting and then do essentially uh, through machine learning and um, a screen of resumes that were coming in and and do the the initial cut right what ended up happening was um, it, it ended up hiring a lot of what they already had. Well, I should say it ended up advancing a lot of candidates that were anything but diverse. Sure. And so what they realized in the process, um, a little too late, was this machine learning, this algorithm, this AI, was designed by the people <laughs> that were already in the organization. And so what it ended up happening what ended up happening rather was um, it was unconscious bias that was built into the te- technology. So if I'm designing a technology with my view of the world, well naturally it's probably going to go out and seek and pull people that are like-minded because I would say this is what success looks like. Um, that to me was not a good use of the technology. It was probably um, short-sighted um, best of intentions, right? Let's, mm-hmm. let's let the technology do it in an, in an objective way. Sure. In an, um, removing bias from the equation. Because these things, right, don't have hearts and minds and souls. They should be unbiased. But if we design them with bias unintentionally, Mm -hmm. it still has the same impact on the world. Sure. And so that's a small example to me where the technology um, did not do better for society. And if you take that example, you can find those every single day. There's a great um, podcast out there called Invisibilia, Invisibilia, and it talks about how um, technology is used in a certain way to sort of favor those that already used it or designed it and what about those that are sort of invisible still? Um, and there's some great episodes there where, you know, you listen to them and you think about um, the way they use technology. And if somebody were had different challenges, had different, um, you know, limitations, would they get the same result out of it? And most of the time the answer is no. And then you ask yourself, is that fair? So to me it's about equanimity um, and that's that's you got to focus on that in order to to keep it positive um i also think there's you know to get really esoteric about it you could say there's a lot of technology being used out there um drones Mm -hmm. um that are being used for bad bad outcomes um some good some bad um that's again part of the human condition it can be used um for good and for evil well, I love that you talked about unconscious bias
1: and how that infects, that affects how we maybe infects too, how yes, we infects, how we yeah. build and create our technology and the the purpose and the effect that that technology has yeah. on the world yeah. as a result of what we put into it. Um, you know, speaking of unconscious bias, I know you are very actively involved in inclusion and diversity uh, at West Monroe, so right. I, I'd love to hear a little bit more about why you're passionate about IND, how you kind of got involved in the IND space and uh, what you
0: do with IND at West Monroe or why, why it's important. Sure, yeah. I mean, I, I guess to start off with the why, like why inclusion and diversity? Um, why am I passionate about it? Um, I, I've had the experience of, um, you know, growing up in a world Um, where I lived around the world. I got to learn many languages, live in many cultures, um, and really broaden and see the beauty in the world and um, all of its cultures and flavors and voices and um, perspectives very early on. And so I was very fortunate in that, and it it made me who I am today. Um, And I've also had the opportunity working through the military or going to the schools that I went to or working on the teams that I've been working on I've seen it in action every single day that when you bring people of diverse perspectives, diverse backgrounds, diverse upbringings, ways of life, um, levels of creativity, you you bring them together with the intention of um, creativity or innovation or just challenging the status quo. Mm -hmm. You put those people together and you just say, here is a challenge. Go do it. Um, You're going to come out with amazing results. I've also seen and been in places where they put you in a group of people that are just like you, had the same education, had the same access, had the same, you know, um, uh, socioeconomic upbringing, and you don't get such great outcomes. You get a lot of the same. You get a lot of um, groupthink. You get a lot of um, baked in bias. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I've, I've seen it. I've seen it change cultures, I've seen it change lives, I've seen it change outcomes. And once you've seen it, it's hard to unsee it. Once you've been affected by it, it's hard to not wanna be you know, around it. So personally and professionally, I've seen it um, enacted a great deal. I had an opportunity here at West Monroe to be a part of that journey. When they brought me on three years ago, I talked to them during my interview about how I was very, very focused on inclusion and diversity. How in my own upbringing and life and through the military and, you know, being a gay man and and the adversities that I had faced, but the resiliency that I had built in the process and, frankly, the beauty that comes out of all of that. And I told them that this is important to me. Um, I helped, you know, grow uh, parts of an organization previously that way. I helped students and universities with this. I helped parents. It's just something that I would do, you know... Anyway, and any day, as I say. And they said, that's great. You know, we're at a place where we are really, really hoping to scale this and do this right. Will you help us do it? And so I absolutely said yes. Um, and we've grown uh, in a very impressive inclusion diversity council here at West Monroe. Um, we're, we're a relatively young company. We're 15, 16 years old. And so, um, but we're taking some, some, you know, I, I think some bold um positions on what inclusion is and what belonging feels like and it's just an honor to be a part of that and i would say it's even more of an honor to get to live that out in our client spaces as well i think now our clients are starting to listen to our own experience and say hey how are you doing this you know you and i both work in the tech world and and in the consulting world and those are two places that struggle a lot with um I don't want to say they struggle with inclusion per se. I think they do struggle like we were just talking about before with diversity, right? Mm-hmm. Um, how do you go get diverse minds and diverse talent? you got to go to different places. you got to meet people where they're at, going all the way back to what we started with, right? Um, all of those things require a different approach, um, a different perspective. And, and for me, that's, that's why I'm so passionate about it. I see the results. I see change happen every single day in the world. And um, I think it happens in a more momentous and memorable way when you have diversity and you're inclusive and people have a sense of belonging. They can do their best work. I mean, if if you feel like you belong to a community um, and you're supported, you're not worrying about certain things and that doesn't take energy away from you. And then you can direct that energy into other things like creating or brainstorming um, or innovating.
1: Sure. And, and I've read, you know, study after study that shows that, you know, our teams do better when they're diverse or Mm -hmm. when they're inclusive and, um, you know, performance is better financially, there's a better return. So, um, that's, you know, that's very interesting to hear. Um, and I, and especially what you were talking about in terms of change, um, change and, and IND in the tech space and in, in our project space. So, it, it can be difficult and I've seen many situations where there's not a lot of diversity like you were talking about and um and it's it can feel uncomfortable yeah. in, in that in that space and and as consultants we have a duty to our clients yeah. um that that's where where we live and that's our bread and butter right. so uh, a question about that how do you approach a non-inclusive space or a, yeah. a space that doesn't make you personally feel safe or someone else and uh, feel safe how do you approach that especially in a client situation
0: yeah, it's a great question. I think one of my, sort of my my go-to approach to it is, um, is to start off by not making assumptions. So it's, it's a very hard thing to do, mm-hmm. right? I mean, I, I think we're coded and we're sort of, um, a lot of times it's projected into us. To You go into a new space or you meet new people and we carry around stereotypes and we carry around assumptions. And whether we know it or not, we're kind of l- viewing the world through that. Sure. Right? So the first thing I do is I try and check all of that at the door. Like, you know, it could be, literally be a door where you say to yourself, <laughs> before you walk in that door, like, leave all these notions, leave all these assumptions, leave all these stereotypes or whatever, leave them, leave them here, right? Um, because you are going into a new space and you're meeting new people. And frankly, none of us are mind readers. So you don't know if, if somebody is um, has had you know, the same upbringing as you, whether they appear that way or not. Um, you don't know what's, what, what's going on at home for them. You don't know how their morning started off and you actually may have more in common with them than you realize and vice versa. They may not realize they have as much in common with you. So that's probably my, my first thing is to kind of go in almost tabula rasa, right? Like this is a, a clean slate first time. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, as we talked about in the beginning of the interview, go in with curiosity. Go in with inquiry. Um, you know, wonder about things. Ask questions. Now, if it turns into a place and an environment where you don't feel safe and you do not feel that belonging and it is, it is absolutely not inclusive, get out of there. Sure, like, sure. Absolutely. Call on your, your, your own tribe of, of people that you trust and say, hey, I'm not feeling, you know, I'm not doing my best work here. I'm not feeling it. Um, you know, that's what community is about, right? That's why we create communities so that in those moments of, of hey, I'm not comfortable. I need, I need an exit strategy. You can do that, right? And that's a great thing. We've talked about that here. You know, we would never want anybody to be on a client site where they don't feel comfortable. Mm-hmm. We will make, we will absolutely support our people and say we're making changes, you know, on behalf of that person, um, But I also think intentionally, you know, we don't choose clients or choose business that um, results in that being the case. Um, Now, sometimes there are things outside of our control, right? You cannot control every personality or every person. But um, I try and go in with that um, no assumptions uh, start and then you build up, right? It becomes like a little bit of a Lego if you think of like the way you do Lego blocks, Yes, all the blocks are there individually. Do you necessarily know how people are going to stack them and what creation they're going to make? No. Mm-mm. So don't assume, right? Don't assume that they're they're going to take those Legos and turn them into something that it could be, you know, could be used against you. Well, maybe maybe they're going to turn it into something that becomes a tool for you, right? That that makes you uh, see things a different way and vice versa. So that's typically how I go into it, not to oversimplify it, but um, but I've also been very fortunate um, again, because of empathy, uh, people see that in me, people feel that in me and they want to get to know me as a person. And then slowly but surely they realize that I am a a complex human being and I have, um, lots of layers and stories and not all of them align with people. That's okay. Um, but I also never, uh, I, I never sacrifice, you know, who I am and what's important to me and my, my values and, um, you know, I'm, I'm unapologetically me. Um, I, I hope that results in great business and great, you know, client satisfaction. So far it has. Um, but if it, doesn't, if it doesn't work out, you know, I, I make changes. And I think that that attitude of just being unapologetically you mm-hmm. is
1: something a lot of us could use in our day-to-day lives.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think, again, if we go back to the stuff that's the data bombardment, the technology, right? I mean, you got to ask yourself, are you being unapologetically you or are you on sort of a, a piloted path by something else, whether it's technology, whether it's, you know, um, social media, um, step back and really ask yourself that, um, am I being true to me? And then enter the world.
1: And I've heard, I've heard you're interested and in, uh, an active participant in mindfulness meditation. Very much um, so. I'm sure that helps you step back a little bit. Um, yeah. um, and, and feel a little bit less of that being driven by uh, the world around you.
0: Tell me a little bit about how you got into my mindfulness meditation, why so, you enjoy it. Yeah, my my beginnings of this was probably, I, th- I think it's about maybe almost four years ago, if I'm doing the okay. math in my head. It's so interesting because when you think about even the mindfulness journey, it's, it's something that is almost timeless. So when you stop and, and say to yourself, how long have I been doing it? You catch yourself because it's not about how long you've been doing it, right? It's um, it's not something that's a start and an end. So you have to you almost have to like, you know, count a clock back and be like, when did I start it? But um, <laughs> the reason I started it was um, I I was in a place where I wanted a lot more creativity in in my day to day, and I was frankly struggling struggling with a lot of anxiety um, and. You know, I wanted to spend more time in creativity and less time in anxiety. And I stumbled upon an app called Headspace that I've been using for a while. And it walked me through sort of the um, tenets of mindfulness. And I'm now, you know, several years into that journey. And so meditation, I try and meditate twice a day for 20 minutes at a time. 20 minutes is, is, a, is a big chunk of time for most, most people to meditate. But you work up to it. Um, and it, just by sort of starting my day and ending my day, uh, in that, what you, what I do is, is you essentially clear your mind and, um, the mindfulness part comes in where you're not chasing your thoughts. And when you're not chasing your thoughts, you're being very present and in, in the world and in your body and in your mind. Um, and it, that's just it. Like there's no, there's no a set agenda, there's no desired outcome. Um I there's a technique called noting where you sort of say is that a thought or is that a feeling so you can separate what you're experiencing and sensing versus what you're thinking versus what you're feeling. And it's important I think to note that because most of our most of the time our thoughts dictate what we do um not necessarily the other way around. So I try and, you know, understand how am I feeling? Like, what am I experiencing? What am I sensing? What's the sensation versus what's the thought? And just being able to separate those two can actually change your behavior and change the way that you walk into rooms, or more importantly, as you said, change the way that you go into you know, and experience of the world. So, um, so it's just that, uh, just the ability to kind of work through that. And if I walk into a room, like you were saying, that it may not necessarily feel inclusive or appear inclusive I stop and I ask myself what am I feeling you know I don't say it out loud it's all internal but (laughs) what am I feeling and what am I sensing and more importantly is that even mine right like there's again with the empathy and when you're empathetic or an empath you actually pick up on other people's feelings and you experience them as if they were your own so I wasn't really able to manage that and understand that until I got into meditation and mindfulness. And now, a lot of times, if I walk into a room and um, I, I pick up on a, a feeling or a sensation or an emotion, I'm actually able to sort of stop myself and say, hang on, is this even mine? Does this even belong to me? It may be somebody else's in this room or in this building or in this airplane, right? Sure. <laughs> As we spend a lot of time on airplanes. <laughs> it may not even be mine. And so there's small techniques that I've worked on, one I call return to sender, which is basically that. It's like, hang on a second is all of a sudden I got this bout of anxiety about this thing. Is this even mine? Like, I don't, actually, I don't think it is. I think I might have just picked it up by walking by someone or, you know, being, being aware or being, you know, empathic in a way. So I just returned to sender, kind of like, it's not mine, so I don't need to work myself up or go through a bunch of anxiety or stress because this doesn't belong to me. So, so you know, on a simplified um, explanation, that's what it is for me. Um, but it takes work. And it takes understanding how the human brain works and why. Um, it takes understanding biochemistry. It takes understanding um, stimulus and tr- you know triggers. Um, and so, going back to what we we're saying, uh, all the stuff that comes at you during the day and, and in the world. Um, something I've I've put in place in addition to meditation and mindfulness is something I call Silent Saturdays. And I'll I'll be embarking on one of these uh, tomorrow. Actually, it's my fourth one. Where I try and pick a Saturday um, where I don't speak for twenty four hours. Twenty four hours. Yeah. That sounds extremely difficult. <laughs> and it's not. It's not as hard as some might think. Uh, now, to be clear, it's not that I don't, you know, get any stimulus during the day. I listen to podcasts during the day. I read. I listen to music. But I intentionally and deliberately do not speak for twenty four hours. And the reason I I do this is because I find that. If you are not trying to formulate thoughts in a way that you're about to speak, um, worried about how the words land, uh, worried about how they might be interpreted, um, if you're not doing this sort of politicking and gaming that we do every single day in our lives, uh, it's amazing what thoughts actually then stay in your mind and which thoughts leave your mind. So when you're not prologging, if you will, and you're not prefacing what, what is actually there. And it's a pretty amazing exercise to do. And I find it's very healing to do it. Um, and it's amazing also, going back to the phone that we keep pointing at, you can, order, you can do everything on your phone and you don't mm-hmm. really have to speak. So it's kind of an exercise in reality. I can order food. <laughs> I can, I can you know, interact with the library. I can check books out and in. I can go buy things I can interact entirely with the world and not say a word. Wow. And to me, that's great, right? Technology enabled that. But on the flip side, that's terrifying. right? It I can, really is. I can yeah. be a productive, interactive, you know, contributing member of society for 24 hours and not say a single word to a person. Um, it's fascinating. But is it, is it the right thing in retail? I don't know. Is it the right thing in the restaurant Industry, I don't know. Um, It's just it makes me it it just makes me wonder a little bit. So it's healing and it's also um, leaves me wondering.
1: Wow, that's really interesting. I actually never never gave it that thought that you could walk through an entire day and actually. Go through all the your normal functions and yeah. like, have your normal life and not not say a
0: single word. Go to like, the gym. Go to the gym. Get yeah. a swim in. I mean, it, it was kind of an interesting log of sorts to say how much mon- how many things can I do that actually don't require you to speak to a person.
1: Hmm.
0: And believe it or not, there are many things.
1: Wow, <laughs> that's that's very interesting. So we talked about this a little bit, but about how there's a lot going on in the world and um, there's a lot of change in politics and Mm -hmm. um, there's many situations in everyday life and in the workplace where cultural sensitivity is not just important but it's required yeah it's required to have some sort of concept of that so how do you go about change and change management with cultural sensitivity um
0: how does that play in yeah it's it's a a very well-timed question. I think every change management project and program is an exercise in cultural sensitivity, hands down. Um, How you go about it, like, it's interesting because you don't necessarily see that in a methodology. You won't see that in a certification exam. But this goes back to what I was saying, the way I was raised and how I grew up in several countries and, and the way that my parents brought me and my siblings up, which is to be insatiably curious and to be, to be humble and to ask questions from a place of genuine curiosity. Um, and I, I try and apply the same thing when I'm helping organizations go through change. An organization is, is just another version of a culture. Um, and you bring people any, anytime you bring more than three people together, I think you're dealing with culture. Um, it may look the same, it may feel the same, but, you know, it's still a cultural. So the sensitivity part for me is it starts in understanding your stakeholders, for one. So, you know, to, to go back to a very, you know, practical example of change management, it always starts with stakeholder analysis. And you're literally analyzing the who's who of an organization. But it doesn't just stop there. It's not just who is Khalil and what is his role and how resistant is he to change. Sure. It could stop there. I might take it a little further and say, who is Khalil? What is his role? How is this tendency to change? And where does he come from? Or maybe not even where does he come from, but what is what is a sense of belonging to him? Or um, what you know? What are the books that he reads, and why? You know, all of these things I'm asking from the standpoint of what informs Khalil's way of viewing the world, and. You know, the Khalil that comes into work versus the Khalil that, you know, goes home at the end of the day, I think should be the same person, should un- should be unapologetically Khalil, right? Unfortunately, I think in work in work environments, a lot of people change that. They'll say, well, who I am outside of work is different than who I am inside of work. And that makes managing change very difficult regardless. Um, so along the cultural sensitivities piece, I think that's the way I approach it is, um you know, change is just another language that I am still learning. And, um, and you know a lot of languages And I know, here. And I, I know a few. <laughs> but it's, that's the part that I love about it is it requires me to study. It requires me to study people. Um, it requires me to study their points of view. Um, and, you know, you can't necessarily go in and ask them about things political or religious or upbringing or any of that that's okay. I think there's other ways to get to understand who the person is, um, not just who the professional is. So yeah, I mean, I think it's a great question. I think it's very well-timed because it's, you know, we see things around employee engagement and, uh, customer engagement, those all deal with culture. Every single one of those deals with culture. But I think culture can sometimes be a scary word for people, especially in, in um, workplaces and mm-hmm. organizations. So how do we get closer to that? Um, how do we incorporate that in managing change? I think that's a big piece. That's, um, and I think we're going to see more of that going forward because it's no different. Like a, a citizen or a consumer expects to be treated and viewed and interacted with in the way that they want based on how they view the world. I think it's going to be the same very, very shortly here um on how change is executed or managed or led in organizations.
1: Well, well, thanks, Bill. You're thanks, welcome.
0: Thanks for bringing, um, you know,
1: helping bring that culture and that that view of change and yeah. inclusion, diversity to West Monroe and to this podcast today. And you're welcome. Appreciate you, you know, giving us your time and helping us be unapologetically ourselves. Yeah.
0: Well, thank you <laughs> for the idea first of all. The idea to sort of flip the script. Um, and live the questions. Cause you, I think it's the other piece is the, the best part about this is the questions you're asking don't have finite answers. And that's why I love that concept to, th- you know, to do a, a, a tip to the, the on being podcast. I listen to a lot living the questions. I'm living these questions. And I love the idea that you said, Hey, can we sit down and do this <laughs> sure, so yeah. that others can benefit from it? Um, it's great. So I appreciate the time, and I'm sure I'm sure we'll do a follow up. And um, I hope other people have questions and, and can submit, and you know you get to do another one. So of course, well, I'm looking forward to it. Thank you, Khalil.